Welcome to the Diabetes Vault. Research into diabetes has been behind closed doors, locked away to those of us living with it. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the research out into the mainstream, present it and help us to understand it. The aim is to open up and in the process align what's being done in the research world with what it's like for us living our lives at the cold face, dealing with the challenges of diabetes. Join me, Andrew Wilson, and my co-host, Dr. Matthew Campbell, to explore the vault. Well, welcome to the Diabetes Vault. What we're trying to do here is put everyday diabetes, which I live with, um, alongside and align it with the research that's happening. And you'll meet Matthew. Um, but there's lots of research that's happening. But how often do we ever get access to it? How often have I read research? Let's be honest, in the last year, a lot, 36 before, before that, hadn't read any of the research at all, picked up a couple of articles here and there, but really didn't know much about it. So what we're looking to do here is just bring it out of the vault as such, just bring it to the mainstream and for other people to, to have a conversation about and really just make you guys think about what's happening on research. One, what's happening. Two, can I actually understand it? And that's why Matt's here. He's going to, to sort of break it down for us. And we're going to have a conversation about the research that's taking place. And the third thing is, does it actually impact me or you um, and the, broad, the, the sort of broader diabetes community? And the last thing is, again, how can we align the two? Maybe we can put some, um, some information in, and help Matt and the other researchers and the other, other guys that are looking into diabetes um, come up with some some new research that isn't out there at present. So I think first port of call would be to introduce ourselves. So Matt, would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is, my name is uh, Matthew Campbell, I'm a research scientist, um, and I've got interests in all things diabetes. So predominantly type 1 diabetes, but I also work in type 2, pre-diabetes, so those at risk of developing diabetes as well as uh, gestational diabetes. So diabetes as it develops during pregnancy. Um, and really the interaction between diabetes and different lifestyle management. So whether that's diet, nutrition, exercise, physical activity, everything that comes under that umbrella. Um, and we've got a number of different work streams at the moment um, with a, a kind of predominant shift and focus towards insulin resistance. Um, not just as you would kind of traditionally think of it, uh, from a type two perspective, but also for those with type one diabetes, and I'm sure we'll we'll come onto that a little bit later. That's really useful. And do you want to go into a little bit more detail about the nutritional side? Because what obviously we're predominantly speaking about um, research and what's going on there, but a huge part of being diabetic is obviously the food that we eat. And I know that nutrition, and you did briefly mention it in your your kind of intro, but. I know a huge part of what you do is you spend a lot of time looking at nutrition. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my background is actually as an exercise physiologist. Um, and for years, even, I guess, even personally, I was trying to outrun a bad diet. And uh, I kind of very quickly realized that that wasn't really possible. So that really is what kind of brought nutrition to the forefront. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an exercise physiologist, I, I kind of understand or, or try to understand how exercise impacts the body and different bodily functions, um, but with an interest in nutrition, um, not just kind of long-term diets, but also individual foods. Uh, so individual ingredients within meals, how individual meals and, and particularly how their process can also impact different, different bodily functions. And the main kind of outcome, which I'm interested in is blood glucose regulation and cardiovascular risk. Um, so yeah, a long, a long-standing interest uh, and research background within nutrition and diet and different foods, uh, and their their impact on diabetes self-management and uh, broader kind of blood sugar control, um, and I guess a, a new kind of emerging area as well, which is something called the food matrix. So not just simply looking at carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, which I'm sure most people certainly, if you live with type one diabetes, you probably be very well aware of 
the impact of those macronutrients on um, your, your diabetes control, but also how the food matrix or how the food is actually comprised, how, how it's actually structured can actually impact some of those factors which we're really interested in as well. So introduction to me, um, my name's Andrew Wilson. I've been, I've had type one diabetes for 37 years now. So the vast majority of my life. Um, and I, I've tried lots and lots of things as, as most of us do. Diabetes is a journey that we go on. And as you get older and your responsibilities increase and life changes, you change the way that you have to manage your diabetes. I'm absolutely open to change. And I think being diabetic, you kind of have to be because if you don't, then you get, you, you, you just suffer. So, but I've tried lots and lots of things. And the reason for, um, for starting this as well is because Matt and I originally spoke about insulin sensitivity, which he mentioned before. And it's something that I'm really interested in because I transitioned from a standard Western diet and I did that for about 29 years as most people do, just put up with the highs and the lows and, and, and dealt with it almost, I used to call it bounce back ability when I was young. So kind of a footballing term. Um, and then um, I had, uh, I then transitioned to a ketogenic diet. And the reason was I'm an accountant. So my life is spent dealing with numbers. And in my mind, the ketogenic diet kind of made sense because if you reduce the amount of carbs that you take, you reduce that variability. And for a number of years that worked, the only problem was every time I did eat carbs and I stuck to about 30 to 50 grams a day, but every time I did eat carbs, I had awful kind of control. And then I had other problems, other sort of um, complications off the back of that. So neuropathy, retinopathy, and I had sinus uh, infections and inflammation. So I then searched for another option and worked really hard to understand the makeup of the food that I was eating. And now I'm plant-based, um, which I'm a real foodie. So do I want to be plant-based? Yes, I actually do, because I, I think it's a, a, a sort of informed choice. But that's the reason was plant-based. And I found that I'm insulin sensitive because of it. So let's get back to, to what we're doing on this very first episode. This is the first of three parts. And Matt is basically choosing at this time, he's, he's going to choose some research papers and we're going to, to have a conversation about it. Matt's going to give us an intro and then we're going to talk our way through the, the paper and the, the sort of highlights of it. And I will try in my layman's way to be able to put um, the kind of cold face of diabetes into these conversations um, what I would say is we are going to be inviting other people that are in the, the sort of medical research side and, and any side of, of diabetes to come and join us and also other people that are diabetic to come and join us. So if you're watching this and you want to, to join and just have a conversation, this is supposed to be a, a chilled, relaxed conversation. Um, feel free to DM us uh, or email us and let us know and, and we'll get you on. So, Matt, would you like to introduce the very first paper of three that we're going to talk about? This will be the first one will be this episode will be paper one and we'll have a second episode and a third. So go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, fir the first paper is, uh, is actually something which is applicable to pretty much everybody. So whether you've got diabetes or not, and if you do have diabetes, then it doesn't really matter what type you've got. Um, you can you can really apply this to to your own life and certainly to your diabetes management. So the first paper that I've kind of cherry picked is um, a really nicely written paper. Uh, it's actually open access as well. So if you do want to access the paper, and obviously we'll put the link to it um, in um, the comments below, um, but uh, it's a paper published by a group over in the US from Kevin Hall's lab. And Kevin's really well known for running very tightly controlled inpatient studies. So these studies are laboratory-based studies that ran in a hospital setting. In this study, there was only about 20 patients uh, or so who participated, all had, um, all, all were without diabetes. Um, and they essentially held them captive for two weeks. Um, and what they did was they, they induced two different diets, um, each diet lasting one week each. And at the end of the first week, they then crossed over onto the second diet. 
and each die it was given in a kind of randomized order. So we call that a crossover design because we're, we're crossing over the different diets and they were given in a, um, a random order. Um, so we have a, a randomized control trial with a crossover design, something which you might kind of pick up if you, if you do start to delve down into some of the research. And what the, what the team were particularly interested in were the impact of different uh, processing um, uh, or different processed diets. So rather than just looking at macronutrients, which I'm guessing you know, most of you will, will be familiar with, carbohydrates, fat, protein, obviously we have the big diet wars, you know, two big factions, is it low carb or is it low fat? Which one are we gonna go for? Um, these guys actually thought, well, you know, let's just kind of neutralize that argument um, and just focus predominantly on calories. Um, but why we think calories are particularly important. So what they did was they, they give um, the participants two different diets. On one diet, it was um, an ultra processed diet. So that's foods like uh, kind of fast foods, you know, things which have gone through a lot of refinement. Um, and then on the other diet, it was unprocessed. So more typical of kind of whole foods, um, you know, if you go to a kind of um, whole food supermarket, then, you know, um, it, it really doesn't involve too much refinement. So putting out your kind of your pasture and your rice and, you know, that type of thing. Um, and what they did was they actually, they actually matched um, each diet for nutritional composition um, or as best as they could. And they were, they were fairly close. So they were matched for carbohydrates, they were matched for fat, they were matched for protein, they were also matched for fiber. There's, there were some discrete differences between the two diets because obviously the foods are gonna be coming from different sources. They've obviously been prepared differently. But in terms of you know, that kind of high level uh, overview from a, a nutritional perspective, the two diets were pretty similar. They only really differed in the types of foods that were actually given, whether they were either processed or unprocessed. And then on top of that, they said, well, this is the food which we are going to give you. I mean, they actually gave them the food there and then to eat so that they could properly you know, record and monitor exactly what was going in. And then they said, if you're hungry, then, you know, feel free to, uh, to, to eat as much as you like of whatever you want. So they also monitored ad libitum food intake. So kind of under, under more kind of free living conditions or a little bit more free choice. They weren't just relying on this kind of prescribed diet. And then they measured a, a number of different outcomes. The main outcome was weight. And you might think, well, you know, you're probably not likely to see huge changes in weight over only a short period of time. Um, but they measured weight. They also measured uh, other indices, particularly relevant for um, blood sugar levels. So they looked at blood glucose levels, blood insulin levels, and they also used a, a kind of indirect proxy measure of insulin resistance, which I'm sure we'll kind of touch on a little bit later. And I'll go into a little bit more detail to explain exactly what that is. So they had 20 inpatient adults. They received two different diets. They were matched for calories, sugar, fat, other um, macronutrients. And actually on the, on the processed diet, uh, participants tended to consume an extra 500 calories a day more than what they did on the unprocessed diet. So that's a huge amount of calories extra. I mean, for average dietary recommendations for a woman, that's about 25% more than the dietary recommendation, slightly less for men, around about 20% or so. Matt, just to, to clarify, so this was over 14 days. There were men and women, 10 of each in the, the, the research. And yeah. what I've read, they were able to eat to, to, to the level of desire. So effectively till they were full. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, eat as much as you want until you're full. But if you want something to eat, then, you know, eat it have something to eat. And also they had free choice over what they were eating. So they had three prescribed meals per day, whereby the researchers gave them particular foods to eat, your kind of breakfast, your lunch, and your evening meal. And then on top of that, people were, were free to eat as much or as little of what they actually wanted to do. And it was only on the ultra processed diet. So that kind of fast food style diet that you seen this, this huge overconsumption of calories of around about 500 calories a day, which is, which is a huge amount, um, you know, in terms of your, your average daily recommended amount. 
Um, and over the over the one week period, just over one week, um, they actually detected a significant increase in body weight. Is that in comparison to the ones that were on the unprocessed or from their original state? Because again, what, what I've read in there, it said they were they had a what was the word they used? They used a weight stable adult. Do you want to go into what that actually means? Sure. So to, to answer your first question, um, the differences were based on not necessarily differences between the two groups, because we're looking at a relatively short period of time, only a week. It's going to be very difficult to detect big statistically significant differences between the two groups after only a week. I'd suggest if you give it a little bit longer, maybe four to six weeks, then you would detect quite large differences between the groups, especially if you're you're kind of consuming 500 calories a day more than one one other group. Um, but what they actually did was they compared the change in weight against their baseline, so their kind of starting levels. So at the point at which people started the diet to the point at which they then stopped the measurement, there was a huge increase in weight. It was about one and a half kilograms, which is you know a, a fair amount of weight. It's, it's a good bag and a half of sugar. Um, and you're right, they, they tested this in weight-stable individuals. And actually, this is a real kind of scientific strength of the study, because what you don't want in a research study is, is to measure individuals who are going through a period of, of kind of weight variability, you know, because th those kind of natural fluctuations in weight are, are, likely, are likely to kind of confound any potential uh, results, especially with a relatively conservative sample size like we've got in this um, study. So... They actually had a kind of pre-monitoring stage or what we call in research terms, kind of uh, a run-in phase whereby uh, they recruit participants. They observe them for a number of weeks to make sure that their weight isn't necessarily going up or down by a huge amount. And then when they're confident of that, they then get entered into the study and then the interventions can then be applied. So it's a real scientific strength because it, that is one of the, it is a major kind of confounding factor of a lot of nutritional feeding studies is that we simply don't know what people were doing beforehand. We simply just recruit people and then give them an intervention and say that it works. But actually it could be, you know, those changes which you might observe, it might not necessarily be down to the intervention. It could have been down to factors happening way before the study even started. So we can be fairly confident in the results, um, in the results in which we're finding are, are, are predominantly going to be down to the interventions which have been delivered. You can see that the average calories that, that people were consuming, 20 people, men and women, average calories was two and a half, roughly two and a half thousand on, um, on the unprocessed. But with the process, you're up at 3,000 roughly again, which is interesting, isn't it? Because if that's the only discernible difference between the two sets of sort of eating regimes, what conclusion does that the study kind of give to why you're consuming much more um, calories on a processed uh, diet? Well, the first thing is that that body weight change, it was highly correlated with the differences in the differences in energy intake between the two diets. So in terms of a, as a, a kind of rough inference that we can draw, we definitely know that the weight is related to the calories. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to be down to a, a huge shift in uh, kind of metabolism that people often associate it with. You know, maybe you're just burning less or you're burning more calories. That's not necessarily what we saw here. It's, it's simply energy intake here. In terms of some of the reasons for that, well, they also measured uh, a number of other outcomes. So one of, one of them was appetite. And you can measure appetite in a number of different ways. The first one is subjective. So it's relatively simple. You just ask someone how full they are. You can actually do it on a what's called a like it scale. Um, so it's, it's a, essentially um, you just ask people to mark on a scale um, from one end to the other, kind of diametrically opposed. Are you, are you as hungry as you've ever been or are you as full as, as, full as you've ever been? And you can you can kind of ask people what what they think about that, um, and that's a that's a fairly um, regularly used tool within nutritional research. It's fairly reliable, but we can also measure directly and objectively measure appetite, uh, specifically appetite hormones, and this is exactly what the researchers did. So when we eat a, when we eat a meal, the food is processed. It goes through the gastrointestinal tract. And that stimulates the release of different appetite hormones. Some tell our brain that we are full. Some tell our brain that we are hungry. 
Um, and these levels of hormones actually differ in different individuals as well, particularly if you're overweight or if you have diabetes, then um, some of the appetite hormones released after a meal can actually be slightly different. Um, but essentially what we, what we saw was that the appetite suppressing hormones, so the hormones which make you feel full, they actually increased during the unprocessed diet as compared to the ultra-processed diet. And also the hunger hormone, ghrelin. Um, so this is, the, this is a, a key hormone that makes you feel hungry. This was actually decreased um, during the unprocessed diet. So we can see very clear biochemical differences, you know, objectively collected through um, biomarkers, collected through a blood sample. We can see that these hormones which are responsible for appetite were significantly different between the two diets. Can we go over that? So the... The appetite suppressing hormone was increased during the unprocessed diet. Is that right? And the, the hunger hormone was decreased during the unprocessed diet. Yeah. So the appetite suppressing hormones, yep. the ones which um, suppress your appetite and make you feel full, they increased during the unprocessed diet. But actually what you're saying is you feel full sooner and therefore that's why you're not con potentially not consuming as many calories. And also, and also over the longer term as well. You know, so it's not just the acute effect after a meal. And perhaps there's a kind of, um, a kind of stepped effect as well. So almost a, an additive effect after three different meals. You know, so if you just had one meal a day, which was unprocessed, that, that will probably be better for you. Uh, but if you have three, potentially... Uh, there's a, a kind of additive effect. So if you change your whole diet to unprocessed, then actually you have this kind of global response. So it's like um, a compound effect. If it, it, exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah, so from get it even with one meal, but when you start to eat more meals, so perhaps it's evening meal and lunch, you're going to you're, you're going to get you're going to feel full sooner, and therefore you're probably not going to consume as much. One of the things I've learned on my kind of journey and obviously onto plant-based, and I didn't know this before, I didn't even know this when I was on a ketogenic diet, was that one gram of fat has nine calories, whereas one gram of carbs has four calories. So could that be, and, and that's as technical as I'm going to get, probably on any of these uh, these sort of conversations that we're going to have, but that was something I learned and it was really, really eye-opening for me because I thought, okay, well, if you're consuming less fat, which is what you do on a plant-based kind of lifestyle, then you're going to be consuming less calories. And that's kind of what this, this research tells you as well, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's sometimes quite difficult to look at it in those kind of simplistic terms. terms. And I'm sure, and I'm sure you'll appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, I should have used the analogy of compound interest talking to an accountant as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the fat is, fat is by far the most calorific nutrient that we have available to us. Next is actually alcohol. So again, if you, if you want to cut down weight, drop the booze. Right. And if you, if you, if you're really resistant to it, then have a slim line gin and tonic. That's probably the best you can do. Um, and then you've got uh, carbohydrates and protein, which kind of come in at that kind of four calories for each gram. But it's it, it's really not that simplistic because um, different nutrients behave differently in the body, uh, and our body is able to to break them down and digest them differently, and that impacts how we we're able to metabolize them. So, and that can actually influence lots of things and not just in terms of how we metabolize them but whether we actually use them up straight away for energy or whether we store them as fuel for later um, and for example if you have a large amount of fat um, it actually tends to delay gastric emptying which is a fancy word for the rate at which the contents of the stomach is 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 uh, emptied if you're able to hold on to foods in the stomach for a longer period of time that then delays the rate at which those nutrients can pass through the rest of the GI tract and then can be absorbed into the circulation. And then the body then has kind of free reign. You know, they can, the body can then decide what, what tissues those nutrients can, can kind of be sent to, whether they can be used straight away or, or stored. So although fat is very calorific, um, it does actually delay gastric emptying and it can actually make you feel slightly fuller for longer. I think the issue is if you then couple fat with high sugar, 
sugar kind of has the opposite effect. You know, you get it, it, it's really not very good at controlling your appetite. You tend to feel more hungry, um, you know, very, very quickly if you have something really high in sugar. Um, and I say sugar specifically and not carbohydrate. Yeah. So it's probably very important to kind of make that very clear differentiation. A sugar is a carbohydrate. All carbohydrates are made up of sugars. But when we talk about carbohydrates, what, what we're actually talking about is lots of sugars packaged together in long chains. And the longer the chains, the more complex that carbohydrate is. You might think of kind of starches, for example. Uh, and it takes a long time for those complex carbohydrates to be broken down. Um, and again, that can, that can also delay gastric emptying because it's taken the stomach a longer time to actually break that down into the simple sugars and then for those simple sugars to then be absorbed across um, across the, the intestinal wall and then absorbed into the circulation so that, again, the body can, can, can uh, use them. Um, so in short, yes, fat is very calorific, but it also delays gastric dembeing. So you might actually see a slight suppression in your appetite okay. immediately after a, a meal. Um, but you don't necessarily tend to see a big effect later on. You tend to just have a, a, a very similar effect. Um, the one protein which does have a big appetite suppressive effect is protein. It's been shown to directly stimulate some of these appetite hormones, which can make you feel fuller for longer. That's really interesting to know. Okay, so we've spoken about the weight and the calories, and I think we're clear on on what's happening and why. We'll, perhaps we'll do a conclusion at the end. But should we talk about blood glucose and what happened with the blood glucose on this on this bit of research? Yeah. So they also measured fasting glucose, and remember, this is in people without diabetes. Yes. So it's not necessarily directly applicable to people with type one, but definitely applicable to people with type two. They measured fasting glucose and also fasting insulin levels. And they used the ratio between the two to get an indicator of insulin resistance. So I'll just park insulin resistance for a second. And I'll just focus on glucose and insulin levels. What they showed was that um, glucose levels were, or at least fasting glucose levels. So th these are glucose levels when you kind of first wake up in the morning. Um, they were actually lower, as well as insulin levels were actually lower, again, compared to baseline on the unprocessed diet. On the processed diet, there was no change. And again, you might think, well, you know, why is there no change on that diet? I would, again, just put it down to the very short observation period of one week. If you extended that for a longer period of time, based on what we saw with the unprocessed diet, you'd imagine you'd see a difference between the two diets with the change favoring the unprocessed diet. So although it, was nece it wasn't necessarily definitive, we saw some very clear signals that on the unprocessed diet, um, it might actually have quite important implications for blood sugar management. It might help you control glucose levels better uh, and also insulin levels better. And the ratio between the two, we can kind of derive a bit of a proxy for insulin resistance, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So if we were to put this into layman's terms, the more processed, the more potentially the more carbs, potentially the more fat um, in the foods than, than obviously the unprocessed. And anyone who's diuretic that tracks blood sugars and the rest of it will know that both carbs and fat have an effect, have quite a significant effect on your um, your blood sugars. So but then there are there are plenty of carbs in unprocessed foods as well, aren't there? So yeah. so what would be the discerning difference between the two, and why why would you get a um, a sort of imbalance between the two? Well, again, the first thing kind of comes back to the extra calories. You're having an extra five hundred calories a day, which is a big hit. Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty much an additional meal, you know, every single day, which which you're having on the ultra processed diet. So the first thing is that the body just has to be able to deal with those nutrients. You'd expect glucose and insulin levels to be higher because you simply got, you know, you've simply got more nutrients in the system. The other thing as well is that, um, as well as simply just having more nutrients in the body and the, and the body having to actually deal with that, you also see some some quite acute effects. So. One of the interesting things was that even though people ate more on the ultra-processed diet, 
there wasn't a big shift in their dietary intake in terms of the macronutrient composition. So they tended to eat the same quantity or the same kind of ratio between carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. That didn't really significantly change. And also they tended to come from more processed sources. But it's not just the kind of the big influx of calories. It's also the composition. So if you remember back to when I was talking about carbohydrates and carbohydrates being lots of simple sugars added together or connected together in big, long chains, if you have an unprocessed, a kind of whole foods diet, they typically are very complex. So they're quite difficult for the body to break down. It takes the body a long time. And then the nutrients which are being released can be released slowly over a much gradual period of time. So the body's in a much better position to be able to deal with that. You know, it's not just one big hit of calories all in one go. If you're having a more kind of ultra processed diet, then actually they tend to be in much simpler form. So again, it tends to be much more refined carbohydrates or simple sugars. So not only are you getting kind of, you know, even if you give an extra 500 calories on each diet, if you give the 500 calories in the ultra processed form, the body pretty much has to deal with all of those calories straight away, you know, certainly within a kind of 60 to 90 minute period, which is quite a big ask. Whereas on a kind of unprocessed diet, well, the body might take three, four, five hours to kind of digest and, and kind of, uh, you know, manage this kind of influx of, of energy. So it doesn't, necess- it doesn't necessarily necessitate a huge big spike in insulin to be able to, you know, manage carbohydrates. You don't, you're not necessarily getting that big kind of sugar rush, that big increase in, in glucose with an unprocessed diet. I mean, that explains it. Yeah, thank you. Let's talk about insulin resistance then. So insulin resistance is extremely important. Um, it's, it's a key driver to a lot of this, the, the symptoms of diabetes. Um, so whether it's, um, whether it's, it's, it's high glucose levels, whether it's glucose variability, so the kind of yo-yoing between high and low, whether it's weight gain, the complications associated with diabetes. A lot of our research has shown that it's, it's a, it plays a very central role in driving a lot of those symptoms. But it might not necessarily be something that a lot of people have come across. It's, it's very infrequently talked about. Um, essentially, it can be summed up as um, a loss in the responsiveness of the body to the effects of insulin. So if you imagine if you digest a meal, that meal then gets broken down, the nutrients are absorbed into the circulation. How does the body then process those nutrients, and particularly carbohydrates? Well, there's a hormone which is important, which is insulin, and insulin facilitates, it does two, it actually does two actions. One, it facilitates the entry of carbohydrates into different tissues so that it can either be stored or that it can be metabolized. And it also directly suppresses the release of stored carbohydrate from different tissues. So it really helps to keep blood sugar levels in check by preventing glucose from entering the circulation and also by extracting it out of the circulation. When the body develops insulin resistance, we're actually starting to lose our responsiveness to the effects of it. So insulin becomes less potent. In um, non-diabetic individuals, when you become insulin resistant, uh, particularly uh, in non-type 1 diabetes, then the body will produce more insulin to try and overcompensate and over the long term we know that that's not not very good um you know a high level of insulin um can predispose to developing type 2 diabetes and can actually overwork the cells which are responsible for producing insulin and that's where you can you can then have a kind of overt diagnosis of type 2 diabetes but we also see it in type 1 diabetes as well it's not necessarily affecting the pancreas but the tissues which are exposed to high levels of insulin become desensitized to it. So they become less effective at either suppressing the release of glucose into the circulation, or they become less effective at extracting glucose from the circulation. So you get a, a much higher level uh, of uh, glucose throughout throughout the day. So that's, that's insulin resistance, possibly in a little bit of a, a kind of te- uh, technical term terminology. No, 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 that's really useful because... 
if, if people are watching this, believe me, um, you know, it took years for me to even come across the term insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity. It's spoken about, but with very little authority, very little real knowledge. So hopefully, uh, if you're going to take anything away from, from this, you'll take away what the terminology is and, and how insulin resistance is actually um, understood. You know, that's I think that's really important. Just, just out of interest, have you actually come across the term insulin resistance in clinic? You know, I mean, has as a, a diabetes health professional ever spoken about insulin resistance or try and try to communicate that to you before? No, never, because because we speak about carbs and we speak about blood sugars, that's that is pretty much it. We just talk about about glucose and and your blood sugar um, movements and how how it reacts to carbs. So it's very carb or glucose centric, but it's not. It's certainly never been mentioned in clinic to me, not once in 37 years. Right. Um, the only time it's ever been mentioned, quite honestly, was was um, through either social media or speaking to people that are in the diabetes community. But even then, you know, I asked the question on my Instagram account and and said, you know, do people know what insulin sensitivity is? And I got 50 percent saying yes. And my gut feel is even those 50% are probably a bit loose on what that understanding is. Perhaps we understand one of those two, two elements that you brought up, but understanding both, I think is really important to know. So no, uh, it's never been mentioned. Right. Okay. Which is and quite telling, isn't it? Considering it's so very important. It is absolutely. And, and I think it really kind of demonstrates this kind of symptom led management approach, which is, which is what we see. So again, we're kind of told to fixate on managing our blood sugars kind of day by day, which of course is really important. That's, yeah. that's how you manage your diabetes. Um, and if you don't, then obviously, you know, that can have some, some pretty drastic consequences. So of course that's really, really important, but trying to manage that over the longer term, I think we often just get told about, you know, long-term glucose management, HbA1c, mm. um, and not necessarily the factors underlining that one other question which i was quite interested in asking you which really kind of focuses around the nutrition element was has anything ever been spoken about you know beyond carbohydrates you know i mean you, you talk briefly around the kind of the different amount of calories in in fat compared to carbohydrate but obviously we have a very kind of carb counting approach uh, which is not just in the uk but kind of universal you know people are often said you know often recommend just focus on carbohydrates but I'm just wondering whether you've kind of come across anything else in have a look at fat or have a look at protein okay i don't think it's ever been mentioned anything other than carbs and there's probably a reason for this because over the years what you have is you have um, clinicians and you have you have diabetes nurses that all mean very very well they, they try their very best to to look after us but what they don't want to do uh, my gut feel is 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 really impart their thoughts or then their you know about diets that we should be following so they don't say you know you should do this or you should do that that's slightly changed quite recently you know um in the last couple of years they're talking about low low carb quite often they're, and and for me that's quite concerning because it's all to do with that blood glucose variability and keeping your carbs low to reduce to keep you in range longer which again is really important to do but is it sustainable? Can you do it long term? And actually, is it the right thing for you to do for your long term health? Yeah. And, and that is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to hopefully speak about this in a lot more detail. But um, but maybe the research isn't out there to prove this because low carb is relatively new in, in sort of terms of, of looking after ourselves. What I've found over the years is that they follow a generic kind of look concentrate on your carbs, eat, eat a rounded diet, everything in moderation, have your, 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 your meat and two veg and eat a bit of fruit here and there, you'll be fine and deal with it, deal with the carbs as they arise. So no, to answer your question, nothing is spoken about protein. Very, it's never mentioned. Fiber is never mentioned in the foods that we, that we eat. Um, and calories aren't mentioned either not in my 37 years and I, I may be wrong for other people but I'm, I'm a pretty good sort of cross-section of what you find in clinic I've been there enough that's interesting yeah because you know whether it's whether it's high carb or low carb 
the conversation is still on carbs. Um, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily saying, well, what do the other macronutrients do? And it's really important because, you know, people don't just eat carbohydrates. You know, people eat mixed macronutrient meals with protein, fat, and as you say, a fiber. And they all individually have very important effects on how our body is able to process food and also metabolize it. So, yeah, probably not necessarily for this session, but I think that's definitely definitely a topic of conversation that, that we can tap into. And, and maybe the reason for this as well, and you mentioned it earlier, was HbA1c. Maybe the answer is that they're looking for you to be within that kind of range for the longest period possible, because that is a good gauge of you, of your your chance of having long term complications. Now, um, again, do I fault that? No, probably probably no. I don't fault it. But is it the only is it the only target? Is it the only gauge? Is it the full knowledge that we need? Hopefully, will you and I will speak a lot more about that, and hopefully, people will be coming in and speaking to us about their experiences as well, because. You know, when I went and spoke to my clinician about being low carb, um, they they were saying, OK, well, look, be be careful of X, Y and Z, which was good advice. And now I've gone and said, well, I'm eating between four and five hundred grams of carbs a day. And this is my timing range. And this is the macronutrient makeup of what I eat. They don't really know what to say about the macronutrients because they've never really had to. And again, that's not um, that's not a fault picking. That is just a fact. They they don't look at, at, at the amount of calories, carbs. They don't look at calories, carbs, fiber, protein and the mixture of what you're eating um, uh, and your overall health. What they look at is HbA1c and that's just yeah. ingrained in them. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the evidence is really strong for HbA1c. You know, we know that it's related to the risk of development complications and that's why it's one of the main kind of targets that clinicians clinicians try to work to but from my perspective that's very much uh, a clinical treatment target that's something for clinicians to to um to 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 try and manage um you know if you ask someone with diabetes as with you you know how do you manage your diabetes you know you probably don't think about your hba1c every day unless you're particularly worried about it no. but in terms of managing your diabetes how do you change a number which changes every three months, you know, or, or, or doesn't change until kind of, you know, eight, 12 weeks. So it's about managing the day, the day to day and looking at the factors which drive those day to day changes. Um, but again, I don't really think that's discussed much in clinic and it's, it's not criticism of what health professionals are doing, but I think it's, it shows the limitations of the guidelines and the frameworks that, that they have to work within. We'll definitely talk a lot more about this over time, but should we should we jump back into this to, to this? So we've been through weight, blood glucose, insulin um, uh, sensitivity as such, or resistance in certain cases. Should we do an, an overview, uh, or would you very kindly do an overview of the sort of takeaways from this bit of research? Yeah. So um, just to kind of briefly recap, so in this particular study, they imposed two different diets each a week long in 20 people. Um, and one was ultra processed and one was unprocessed. Uh, matched nutritionally for the same amount of carbohydrates, fats, protein, fiber, and also calories. But on top of the food which was given to individuals, they, they also said, you know, if you want to eat more, feel free to eat more. Uh, and what they found was that on the ultra processed diet, people tended to, to eat on average 500 calories a day more. That resulted in an increase in weight as, as compared to where they started from. Their glucose and insulin levels also tended to be slightly worse off in terms of where they, where they, when they actually started uh, the particular study. And their insulin resistance which was a, in this study was measured between a ratio between glucose and insulin levels was also slightly worse off. Um, one of the main driving factors for that, or the, the main driving factors for the increase in, 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 in energy intake uh, or the, the increase in weight was that um, people were eating more and that was largely because their appetite wasn't as suppressed as much as what it was in a whole food um, or unprocessed diet. So the kind of big take-home message from this was that if you have an unprocessed diet, you will tend to eat less. It's more, it's more filling. You will tend to, uh, and because you're going to 
you will tend to eat less, you will tend to put on less weight, and that will have fewer um, metabolic consequences as compared to an ultra-processed diet. The big caveats are that it's, you know, each diet was only a week long. So, you know, is it, is it that representative to what we do over, over the longer term? Probably not, but I think we've got some pretty strong signals from this research to kind of say, well, if you did this over the long term, then this is the general direction of change. And obviously it was performed in a relatively modest sample of 20 you know, non-diabetic individuals and also in an, um, an inpatient hospital setting. So not necessarily representative to everyday life. And other aspects of their lifestyle were also kind of controlled and managed, such as physical activity and exercise. So if you then apply that to everyday life, you might see some differences. But I think overall, it's a pretty strong signal, which highlights really heavily processed or ultra processed foods are just not very good for you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're, we're seeing more and more about plant-based. I'm not just saying that because I am, but we're seeing, you know, there's so much in social media about it. There's so much on the television um, and there's lots and lots of different types of food that are promoting this now. Um, the takeaways from, from, from this for me, and again, as a layman were, were in simple terms, eating to the desired amount that you want to, but on a processed was you consume more calories and therefore you, you are more inclined to put on weight. Eating um, more to a desired level on unprocessed foods, you eat less calories and therefore are more inclined to actually lose weight, which is what I found when I went plant-based. So I guess the point and the takeaway again for me was the more plant-based, the better, but actually it's not like you have to go right to the nth degree. You don't have to be completely plant-based like I am. Maybe if you just go a meal or start with a meal, maybe for a second meal, and I'll hop back to where you said sort of compounding, that's actually better for weight. And that's excluding everything to do with insulin resistance. What I thought I'd do, if it's okay, is can I just read the conclusion? Because it really kind of hit home for me and you've, you've been over it, but it just... I just wanted to read it because it's a few lines and it says, in conclusion, our data suggests that eliminating ultra processed foods from the diet decreases energy intake and results in weight loss. Whereas a diet with a large proportion of ultra processed food increases energy intake and leads to weight gain. And I think so. You said it. I've said it. And the actual report says it as well. Um, it's really it's really telling, isn't it? Because. Because. And one of the things we haven't spoken about is processed foods are convenient. We live in a world that is all about convenience. Everything's about convenience. You know, we've all got phones. We all sit here and go, we want this now. Let's order it. Let's get it through the door. I don't think we're either of us are sitting here and saying there's anything wrong with that. Maybe it's the extent of how much everything is convenient that's wrong. But off to the side, I'd also caveat the entire report and say, and they do mention this in here, which is that it's not only convenient, but it costs less, which is crazy, isn't it? You know, so it costs less money to eat something that's been processed than it costs to actually eat something that literally just is, is dug up and, and cleaned and brought to the table. I don't know. I struggle with that. I'm going to do a bit of research on that. But It's true, but it's not, it, it, it's not necessarily the case. So actually, if you shop about and you've got the skills to be able to cook, you know, good. So it's, it's, it's also about upskilling individuals, you know, so that they know how to cook a delicious meal that is from, uh, you know, typically unprocessed whole foods, uh, you know, not just kind of going to the packet stuff. Yeah. So you, it can actually be a lot less expensive, but you have to know where to shop, when to shop, what to source, also eating seasonally as well, incredibly difficult in this country. Um, you know, I mean, the seasons are all out of pot at the moment. Um, and, you know, if you go to any supermarket, you know, I would say 75% of the foods are typically out of season. Um, and if you can try and eat seasonally, then that's a fairly good indicator of, you know, whether, well, one, you can predominantly be eating vegetables uh, and fruit. Um, but also it'll give you that kind of variety across the year that you need. You know, you're not just necessarily eating everything all of the time. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly about being able to try and upskill people so that they know what to look for and know, know, you know what to do when they actually have it in front of them. But it, it can actually be less expensive. 
No, I, I, I agree. That's my gut feel as well. But I need to do a bit of research to prove it, whether it's actually happening in my house or not. But I think that was a really good first part of three. Um, and you, you've obviously picked these out, Matt. And, and do you want to, I don't know whether you want to just say, you know, this is the reason for these three papers, these the three research papers that you've chosen. So I guess there's a kind of common thread running through the three of them. So the first one was largely looking at, let's just park macronutrients to one side uh, and just look at the types of foods that are commonly available. You know, if we look around a supermarket, what have we got available to us? Well, we can either stick to the 20% in terms of kind of floor space, which is dedicated to your fruit and your veg, meat, um, unprocessed whole foods, or the 80%, which is either dedicated to uh, kind of processed foods and also loo rule. And it's convenient that those two kind of stick together. Um, and so that's that, that the first paper kind of said, well, you know, what's, what's the impact of food processing? And does that have a knock-on effect in terms of what we eat uh, or how much we eat? And if it does, what does that then do to our body weight? And what does that increase in body weight potentially do to our blood sugar levels? The next paper is then going to look at, well, let's take body weight one step further and let's have a look at what the metabolic consequences of that increased weight actually are, but specifically within the context of diabetes, particularly type 1 diabetes. So that's where we start to look at insulin resistance within type 1 diabetes. And we'll explore some of the mechanisms uh, behind that and also some of the impacts and then the next paper, the, uh, the third in the series, is then to take insulin resistance and type 1 diabetes a little bit further. You know, so what was the actual consequences? If you have a, a degree of insulin resistance, then acutely and also long term, what is the effect of that? Um, and again, the next two papers are going to be from research that my group has, has uh, conducted. Um, and it'll be put, putting all of this into the context of type 1 diabetes. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Um, and, and look, that makes complete sense. If anyone that's listening or watching this, and if you've got any comments to make, make them below, please uh, like and subscribe the video if you're watching this on YouTube um, so that you get notification about the next type, the next posting of this. And if you want to be a guest on here, come on and talk to talk with us absolutely do it if there's something that you want us to talk about or a bit of research that you know about and you're not sure about let us know as again this is kind of like a bit of an open forum guys um so yeah get involved be part of the community and hopefully you've got some value from this and join us next time thanks man thanks andrew